you know, we've done a lot of series kind of topical things, but I kind of come from a background and a pedigree in church where we just want to go open up a book and go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And rather than me telling you what you're going to receive for that Sunday, wherever we're at is where we're at. And that's just kind of how it is. And so I enjoy that way. And so we've been going through First Timothy and we're going to go through the pastoral epistles through a series that we're entitling for pastors, leaders, and everyone else, because this isn't just for leaders. This is Christian stuff, right? Everyday Christian stuff. And so um, if you remember last time we got together, we were in 1 Timothy, particularly in chapter 3, verse 15, where we talked about what Paul meant when he said that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Meaning when you look out into the world today, the church is supposed to stand out. It's supposed to be telling people the truth. The church is not an organism and an entity designed to just basically be a popular thing where everybody can come and kind of hang out and, and you know, have a country club. And, and certainly there's community aspects and certainly there's, you know, being a part of people's lives is, is definitely a part of church. But if church doesn't tell the truth, why is it here? If you come in and you are not told the truth, but you are told what the popular view of the world is, if the world is able to dictate to the church what is right, what is wrong, what is love, what isn't, if the world's able to do that, the church has lost its flavor. It's lost what it's here for. The, church, the world doesn't tell us what morality is. But the thing is, is the church has got to be willing to stand up and listen, bear the brunt, because that's what he says. It's a pillar of truth. Pillar is, is a column that holds the weight of what it supports. And so if the church supports truth, then it has to hold the weight of the truth, meaning that if you tell the truth and it becomes super heavy for you in your life or a church tells the truth and it becomes super heavy for them as an, exist, as, as an existing organism, so be it. But you can't compromise a message because the world doesn't like it. I've said this before. The world does not get to tell the church how it wants to repent. It doesn't get to do that. The church lovingly tells the world what God's word says, and the world then has a choice. As this idea in chapter 3 continues into 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're told that something interesting in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, that in the last days, we're told in the end times that many people are going to depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They're going to depart from the faith, you guys. And as we looked at this, we saw that this departure isn't simply a sudden departure. Like I wake up one day and I decide that there's no God, right? Or, or I wake up one morning and I decide, you know what? I no longer believe that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or I, I, don't, I reject the nature of God. That's not the departure he's talking about here that you can expect in the last days. That might be some of it, but the larger part of it, you guys, this idea of departure is a slow withdrawal from the truth as we give heed to doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits. That it seems to indicate, you guys, that this is a process where a person departs. It's one step at a time. It's not this massive movement where it's like, I don't believe anymore. That could entail that as well. 
but it seems to be this idea that a person is listening to thoughts, they're grabbing on to beliefs that aren't right, and it's so slow and so minute that it's almost undetectable, and then they wake up one day and they find themselves rejecting basic beliefs of Christianity and basic things about the nature of God. Well, God didn't really say that. You know, he didn't just wake up one day and said, well, God accepts everybody irrespective of their belief in Christ and that's just the God of love and I don't believe in a God that judges. You just didn't wake up one day unless you were in a psycho church or unless you're listening to weird stuff. You slowly departed. You took steps back. You listened to little thoughts and plants. People that, that the enemy surrounded you with in your life started talking a different path and you started, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It's a process. It's a process where deceitful spirits that do exist and doctrines of demons put pressure on the mind, the soul, and the emotions of a person. And emotions play a big part in it. I got friends and I love them and God, God would never do that. God would never say that about them. God would never, no way. And so there's an emotional ploy that these deceitful spirits go, what kind of God would, would, would condemn someone like that? What kind of God would love like that? That's not, and you slowly back away from what truth is. That's the departure that seems to be indicated in the end times. And people begin to rethink strongly firm-held beliefs and convictions, which before were no-brainers to them. And so you might have friends, and you're talking to them one day, and all of a sudden you're listening to them talk about things in, in directions that you never even imagined. And you're like, where did this come from? And listen, they're not absent from the church. They're in the church. They're here. It's people sitting next to you. Paul's point to Timothy here is that in the last days, the professing church of Jesus Christ seems to be at least in part responsible for the demise of people's faith by advocating things that aren't right and aren't true. Now, I know that probably registers in your mind as no way. How in the world could a church aid in its own demise? That is insanity. Who would believe that? Follow me here, because it has a lot to do with what we're gonna talk about this morning. When Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation, seven churches, in Revelation chapter two, he talks to a church called Thyatira. I want you to listen to this, Revelation 2.19. Here's what he says. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Great. Great assessment so far. You want to be, have that said about you. But, this ain't going to be good. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idol. I gave her time to repent, but she refused. Behold, I'm going to throw her into a sickbed and into great tribulation and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. Listen, whoever this Jezebel is, right? Whatever it's emblematic of, Right, there's a spirit of Jezebel, scripture talks about whatever this is and whatever else this means, it clearly means that there is a teaching in the church 
in these days that seduces the minds and the emotions of churchgoers. It grabs hold of them and, listen, it makes them believe and practice things that aren't true and aren't right. And this is precisely what I'm talking about. The church today seems to be aiding. When I say church, I mean the church, the so-called church, everyone who would name the name of Christ around the world, the church seems to be aiding in its own demise and and, and supporting things that it's supposed to be protecting people against. Lifestyles and beliefs and understandings and redefinition of age-old terms about the character and nature of God. God is love, and God defines love. But today the church is grabbing on to anything and everything that gives them the permission to wipe away any line of demarcation between the world and the church so that the world doesn't have to repent and the church doesn't have to call them to repent. But that's the gospel. Without that, you have no gospel. That's the day you and I live in, and that is the wonderful, beautiful place that the King of glory has placed us in in this time, in this place. That leads me to a haunting question. Who really makes up the church? Who really makes up the church? You know, my absolute most frightening fear as a pastor is that people would sit in church on a weekly basis and they would think that they're right with God when they're not. That is my worst fear and that I would have something to do with that, that that I would refrain or hold back something that they desperately need or, or tell them something that isn't accurate so we don't offend people because the most important thing, right, is that everybody comes into the chairs of the church so that the church is full. That's the most important thing, right? So whatever it takes, who cares? Just get them here because if you can get them here, then you can talk to them. But if we don't talk to them about the truth, what are they got? What are we giving them? Folks, this is a reality. Always has been. People thinking they're right with God when they're not. It's always been that way. Listen to this sobering narrative. This sent chills down my spine this week in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Listen to this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into the cloud in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Five alls, Paul is telling this church, he's saying, listen, all of the children of Israel were a part of the same exact provisions from God. Every one of them. They saw the miracle of water come from the rock and they all drank it. They are the ones that walked through the sea and they all walked through the sea. They were the ones that all ate manna from heaven. They all watched this omnipotent hand of God provide for them. All of them did. The children of Israel, the people of God. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They all got the provision of God, yet with most of them, God was not pleased, so they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Now these things have happened as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Verse eight, we must not indulge in immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble and complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our instruction to whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's the instruction of God to the people of God, to the nation of Israel, to the ones chosen, to the modern day church. If you think you stand, take heed. Pay attention lest you fall. There is no respecter of persons with God. Just because you grew up in a church does not mean you know God. I had a wonderful conversation this last Friday with two missionaries, two young men, fantastic young men. We've been having discussions. I love them. They're, 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 they're great. And in that conversation, the, the conversation turned towards salvation. We've got some differences in our views, but here was the main point that I wanted them to understand. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the South. It doesn't matter if you're a Presbyterian. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Mormon. Church can't save you. It can't save you. The church did not bleed for you. Men did not bleed for you. The church did not say it is finished. A person did that. A man did that. Jesus of Nazareth stretched himself out on the rack and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And unless I know him, it doesn't matter what label I put on myself. It doesn't matter. And we have got this so mixed up thinking that if I just attend the right church and I go on Sundays and I go on Wednesdays and, I, and, I, and I'm baptized and I say this and do that and don't do that, that somehow God finds favor, yet with most of them, they were not pleased and every one of them went through and received the provisions of God. They all ate the manna, they all drank from the rock, yet most of them God was not pleased with. You guys, this has always been the case with people of faith. Here in 1 Timothy 4, Paul is going to tell Timothy what's important. What is important as a pastor to ensure a right standing with God so you protect yourself and your life and your beliefs, but not just a pastor for every Christian. Read it with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brethren, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and good doctrine and you, that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Everybody say, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come again, devote yourself to public 
public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearer. For the remainder of our time, you guys, I want to focus on one specific point here that Paul makes. It's the point he makes at the end of verse 7 when he says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Also in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Again, in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And again, at the end of verse 16, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. In verse 7, the word train, in train yourself, it's where we get the English word gymnasium. It means literally, in the Greek, to exercise naked. Yes. Now, I'm not really sure what kind of weird things the Romans were into when it came to working out. But at my gym, people are clothed, right? They, they well, kind of clothed. You, you get my picture. <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, train yourself or exercise yourself for godliness. I have a weekly routine. Tomorrow morning at 4.15 a.m., I'm going to wake up to my alarm. It's going to be staggered with a 4.30 alarm. Right around 4.35, when they're alternating every three minutes, my wife is going to say, bro, turn it off now, okay? That's a daily thing. <laughs> then I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to get dressed, and right around 5 a.m., I'm going to be at Vasa, and I'm going to be on a treadmill for about 10 minutes, and then when I step off of that, tomorrow happens to be shoulder day, and so I'm going to go, and I'm going to do, do five different exercises, right? I'm going to do four different sets of each of those, rep, of, of, those, of those exercises with 12 to 15 reps in each one of those. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to then make my way over and do about a 10-minute ab workout, and then I'm going to be home and, and do something nice before my, for my wife before she goes to work, because that's what Christian husbands are supposed to do, right? Ding, ding. <laughs> Sometimes I have a friend with me, um, and sometimes he doesn't come. <laughs> but if Casey decided to show up, and if he was working out with me, here is one thing I know. I can't have him lift for me, and then me receive the benefit of that labor, of that investment. It's not like tomorrow I'm going to say, okay, Casey, I really want you to start pressing shoulders. Oh man, I could feel that. That's amazing. Keep going. Do more, right? I'm not going to get anything out of his labor or his effort at all. You see, you guys, there comes a point where we have to see this command as essential to both our own growth as well as our protection against deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And that command is train yourself. Train yourself. You guys, there is a direct investment when you train yourself for godliness. There is, a, there is an, a consequence for that. 
right? If, if, if I'm going to exercise, let's say tomorrow I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to exercise my arms. If I walk in and I sit and I look at the stack of weights and I look at the dumbbell for 20 minutes and somebody says, what are you doing? Well, I'm exercising. No, you're not. You understand that connected to this idea of exercise is movement, is motion, is resistance, is action. You understand that. And when I go and pick those things up and I start to lift and I start to curl, then I can say, listen, I am investing in this at this moment in order to get this over here. Here is what I have never seen in all my time. I have never seen somebody want to look like something like this, but don't put in the effort in order to get there. Don't, don't do anything. And then when they're over here, they're looking at that and they're going, man, I I don't know, understand why I just can't achieve. I just want to look and I just, because there's no investment. You have to, listen, we're not talking about salvation here. Salvation is a gift of God. It is not of works. It is the grace of God. It 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 is nothing to do with you. God saved you. But listen, if I want to invest, if I want to look more like Christ, if I think that I've got nothing to do with that, then do nothing and watch five years, 10 years, 20 years go by and you wonder why it is I just can't seem to to connect with God. Well, let me ask you, what have you done to train yourself for godliness? Your husband, your wife, listen, husbands, Man, you can invest all you want in looking at the weights and looking at what you're supposed to do. I, you say, well, I go to church and, and, I, and I go to the men's group and, or I go to the women's group and so I'm exercising myself for godliness. That's not exercise. Don't miss what I'm saying here. If you want to start eating healthy, go get a cookbook. It'll give you the recipe. It'll, it, it'll tell you what to make. Right? If you want to know how to build your, your, your pecs, go get a magazine. It'll tell you the, the, the exercises to do. That's fantastic. Church is like the recipe book. It will tell you what to do. God's word will, will tell you how to cook something, how to make a, a good life. And it'll tell you how to exercise. But it doesn't exercise for you. It doesn't lift the weights for you. If you're having a problem loving your wife, listen, you can come to all the Bible studies you want in the world. That doesn't exercise you to maturity. At some point, you gotta love her. At some point, if, if, if you're struggling in debt and you're just drowned in debt and you come and you're saying, oh man, I just felt so convicted today in church. I got this amazing message and God really spoke to me. That's great. Now you got the recipe, yo. At some point, you got to put it together. You got to exercise. You got to pick the weights up for godliness. You got to apply it. Folks, Christianity, and people don't understand, Christianity is an individual training. 